Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tia House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Liz Howard, led by Paul Monnier. My name is Mahmoud Ababne. I am a research assistant for the Tia House project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Liz and Paul discuss her book, Letters in a Bruised Cosmos, and how her background in scientific psychology informed her poetry writing. As well, Liz talks about relationships with other authors and online community members during the pandemic. Over the course of the conversation, Liz tells us about the books she always returns to and her favorite stand-up comedians who bring her joy during COVID-19 lockdown. Paul Monnier is currently an English PhD candidate at the University of Calgary. Paul's poetry explores spaces between experimental form and subject representation, and his work has been published in Node magazine, Filling Station magazine, The Anti-Langorious Project, and more. Paul's shared-funded dissertation, Mapping Poetics, navigates Calgary's queer history through experimental poetry, exploring how atemporal crossings weave between past, present, and a poetics of a queer futurity. Paul also studied photography at the Alberta College of Art and Design. Liz Howard's debut collection, Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tin, won the 2016 Griffin Poetry Prize, was shortlisted for the 2015 Governor General's Award, for poetry and was named a Globe and Mail Top 100 book. Her second collection, Letters in a Bruised Cosmos, was published in June 2021. Howard received an Honors Bachelor of Science with high distinction from the University of Toronto and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Guelph. She is a mixed settler and Anishinaabe heritage, born and raised on Treaty 9 territory in Northern Ontario. She currently lives in Toronto. I hope you enjoy this episode.
Hello, this is Paul Minier with the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing. I am so excited to be joined today for our Tea House Talks podcast series, and I'm joined by Liz Howard. Hello, Liz. Hello, Paul. It's a pleasure to uh, be in conversation with you this evening. Yes, it's, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm a really big fan of your work. Uh, we're really excited about your forthcoming book, and I was wondering, now that we have this opportunity, would you be uh, open to telling us a little bit about Letters in a Bruised Cosmos? Yeah, so uh, my current book, uh, Letters in a Bruised Cosmos, is going to be coming out uh, this June. And the book is a collection of poems which meditate on the space between life and death, knowing and not knowing, and also the danger and necessity of living with each other. The title was inspired by an astrophysical finding that there is a cosmic bruise on a so-called radiation heat map of the universe. So there is this omnipresent afterglow of the Big Bang that's measured, that can be measured, and is called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And within this map, they detected what they termed a cosmic bruise. It was a site of statistically significant, like reduced temperature in this in this region of otherwise what you would expect, you know, varying levels of measurement of heat to be um, in this map. Um, and in any case, the most viable scientifically, a scientific interpretation of the presence of this bruise on our universe is that it's evidence that another universe once collided with our own. And, and as such, it's the strong, as I said, it's the strongest evidence for a parallel or multiple universe. So as a survivor of, of child and interpersonal abuse, as well as sexual assault, I came to see that the cosmic bruise could not only be a sign of different worlds and possibilities, but also a metaphor for how we mark and are marked by one another. These bruises of intimacy, or the lack of it, can accumulate and be passed on through generations, such as uh, through intergenerational trauma. So in this book, I've written broadly about personal accounts of my childhood, tumultuous relationship, Anishinaabe star knowledge, quantum physics, being present at the death of my birth father and dealing uh, with the aftermath of that and surviving a sexual assault under the threat of death and also the legal proceedings that followed that. And also it's about being a proud Indigenous woman who refuses to be silenced. An essential image or theme in the book is Vaganagishik, or the hole in the sky, which is an Anishinaabe constellation, which corresponds to the, the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters. And in the readings that I've done, Vaganagishik is connected to the Shaking Tent Ceremony, so which of course, you know, this connects to my first uh, collection. And the hole in the sky, Vaganagishik, is seen as a portal to the spirit world. And in one story, it's the hole that Sky Woman fell through and then descended to be a part of the creation uh, of Turtle Island, of which we are both on now. And so I consider the book as a kind of portal between myself and my ancestors, myself and community and future readers. And I hope it's seen as a show of incredible generative and creative strength born out of a kind of falling. Wow, that's that's amazing. I was excited just for the premise that you had a book coming out. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 kind of it's a it's it's a heavy book. It's a deeply personal book, but it's also a book that's operating in a sense, trying you know, attempting to kind of operate almost at the quantum level as well, or taking the taking these infinitesimal processes into account, as well as these larger kind of macroscopic forces of you know socio-political uh, machinations. Do you mind if I ask 
I'm curious because it, um, you have a background in cognitive neuroscience, correct? Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah, I have a undergraduate degree and uh, in research like like scientific psychology as opposed to you know like clinical psychology or like psychoanalytic psychology. And I worked for a number of years in a cognitive psychology laboratory that focused on aging. And then I worked for two years in a cognitive neuroscience laboratory, uh, which was investigating different sort of neural correlates of aging uh, across the lifespan in, in, in specific regions of, uh, of the brain. So my work has yeah, been broadly informed by a lot of the, the jargon, you know, the vocabulary of that form of inquiry. It's something that is still very much alive in my sort of cre creative field of potential that I, that I draw from when I am doing creative work, when I am trying to de trying desperately to write, to write poetry, which often is, is sort of the case. Sometimes it's like trying to get blood from a stone, but that's sort of, that's very much in there. And uh, there are some theories and I don't know, ways of, you know, understanding how the brain functions that finds its way into my poetry. And in the new book, I, you know, I have a, I have a, a poem called brain mapping. And in part, it's about working in this, in this laboratory in which I was, I, you know, I was just a research assistant. I wasn't sort of like the main researcher, like PhD student, like postdoctoral or PhD student on the, on the project. I was more of a doing all of the administrative tasks, but I got to, uh, you know, you know, scan dozens of people, like be on the other side of running people through this experimental protocol while they were having their 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 brain imaged in an MRI machine and then that data would be sort of uh, analyzed and processed afterwards detect which regions of the brain were active or activated or deactivated uh, during different tasks and so it was incredible because you know I, I would just be sitting there for the longest time because a huge part of the the imaging session would just be getting structural images and so, you know, I, I had just met this person and then we prepare them to go into the MRI machine. And then within a few minutes, you know, the MRI machine buzzes and clicks and hums. And it kind of feels like this giant forecasting, like predictive kind of like sort of machine. I, I kind of, I don't know, imbued it, romanticized it, I guess, with these sort of things. Cause, you know, be because I am a poet, you know, in addition, well, in addition to being a kind of scientist, apprentice uh, type of a figure yeah then within a few you know w within a couple of minutes i would see like their brain like an image an image from the inside of their skull what the inside of their skull looks like that in all likelihood they themselves have never seen before so it felt it felt like so pr profoundly intimate while being also sort of like there's like that cold clinical like scientific remove also at the same time so, so there's that kind of a paradoxical feeling of bizarre intimacy a bizarre intimacy and like cold clinical fact and anatomical, you know, considerations, you know, neuroanatomical considerations. And I think that that sort of whole experience has made its way into maybe how, you know, maybe how I write poetry and how I try and write about my own mind or inquire about like the, the minds and hearts of others who are in my life or have, you know, passed through my life in various ways. Right. Yeah, I was interested in in hearing you speak about letters in a bruised cosmos, which I know we're going to be blessed with a little bit of a reading. But I was interested in that question because because I know in your in your previous book, Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent, which I just love so dearly. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a such a strange book, uh, and I'm so happy that 
so many people have found an affection or interest or provocation through it. And also sometimes boredom. And some people don't very like don't like it very much. But well, I know that you spoke, you know, it, within the writing and also speaking about um, Infinite Citizen about these multiplicities of the deeply personal, which which you were yeah. speaking to, but also yeah. that sort of scientific framework on how to sort of explore the self through all of these cross-pollinating dynamics like it's not science and it's not all personal it's 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 everything all at once and and so as you were speaking about letters in a Bruce cosmos which is coming out which I'm so excited to pick up <laughs> I was wondering I, I'm not I'm not interested in an either or kind of way to pursue this but because of the deeply personal facets that you were sharing about some of the, yeah. the content in this book and some of the reasoning behind the writing in it but also how complicated and like meta <laughs> the scientific yeah. components yeah. are. I don't mean meta, like cross-cultural, cross-sciences, cr like, and, and yeah. yet anchored in the deeply personal. I'm wondering if you found an inroad into producing this book, maybe through one channel more so than the other, or if they came about together? When I was in my master's program for creative writing. I had the great privilege of working with Dion Brand. And I took two uh, poetry workshops with her, which was incredible. And during the first workshop, at some point, you know, she's, she made this, she talked about, uh, or made, made this suggestion of, it is the case for her, for each new work, she tries to, to take up, you know, the concerns or whatever it is she felt that she did not adequately address or, or achieve in the previous book. And I took that very much to heart while I was trying to bring together the second collection because I was, you know, I was very much, I was writing sporadically over a period of years and it was very busy and generally hectic and tumultuous, you know, that word again, uh, time in my life. And what I really felt that I wanted to explore was a kind of intimacy. And so I started thinking about the form of letters, right? And uh, in reading some, I always mispronounce this word, epistolary, is that right? Epistolary literature? Yeah. And I became interested in that format. There are a few, there are a couple, there are only a couple of poems in the book that are, that name themselves as, as a letter for example, in the title, but almost everything, almost every poem, it is, you know, the speaker is addressing a someone, a you, a you is addressed, whether that is stated explicitly or not. And I found that by working, and, and it was very difficult, it was very difficult for me to work in this way because because it is so vulnerable. And in my previous work, you know, I've, I've discussed some topics that, you know, were sort of, that, you know, had a kind of vulnerability to it, but I was so very much in a space of pushing comprehension and what language can do to its absolute limit. That was my undertaking, I suppose my goal, my, my pursuit with, you know, with, within my own creative practice. Whereas here I'm, I am still, of course, in many places, I'm still up to my old tricks. I'm sure to most people, it will still read like, oh, this is a Liz Howard poem, you know, <laughs> but there are, but there are also other, other moments of sort of a, a plain spokenness and direct address and relation of experience of anecdote 
relation of of longing, of lo- of longing, of love, of fear. And I found that this was the best way for me to then also have these different scientific influences or fields of theory and language that I was drawing from also also be present. And so I'm still so very close to the work that it's hard for me even now to have a really good cohesive perspective on the entire thing. I haven't even, I was supposed to receive like, like some bound copies. Of, like I haven't even seen it as a, as a full-born sort of book creature that I was the, the writer of. But we'll see, we'll, see, we'll see what people think, I guess. We'll see, we'll see how it's received. And hopefully, hopefully that's sort of like what I call sort of like the deeply, darkly personal and the almost bleeding heart vulnerability attenuate some of the more explosive use of language and and what I've been told before like might be kind of inaccessible use of, of science of scientific theory and jargon so hopefully that I don't know hopefully that answers your question yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's great so beautiful so beautiful thank you Liz would you yeah. be willing to provide a, a reading of former or forthcoming work or whatever you'd like yeah to yes I'd like to read two poems so the first poem I'd like to read is called Settler Anishinaabe Quay, Noli Turbare. Beauty is my irreparable eye, and today I became geometric. A linear figure that distills a skip trace of first principles. In a whiteout of Atlantic snow, banging stars into the femoral vein of Euclid, while rows of lavender circuits, all porous, surrounded me. I genuflected before the hospital parking lot of my father's jaundice, for I am a good daughter of the colony, the colony which begot the immortal heart of the markets. Resources nursed all young bucks of the florets, a liquidity I should service or else receive a lesser dessert. With my smudge cleanse at the ready, I find myself dispensing with the usual future haunt of resilience, a survival, signaling my relationship to time, or am I out of it entirely? Come polygon and I circumvent the disaster. Do not disturb my circles. Holy I went, holy all around my head. The holy I am went careening down the back stairs of this low-rise rental. Striated by the pinnacle light of this city, that has my blood pooled purple at the center of its gravity. You can scan the ground from overhead for death pits. I read this on the internet when I was dehydrated, lonely, and afraid. Office plants became the broad-leafed repositories for my cognition's faded heart. I've gone and been abominable. A column extended from the top of my head into heaven, at the edges of my system, an Anishinaabeg or Indo-European projection of words my nerves could translate into the crawl space of animal magnetism. White pine verticals send us up as a stomach pumped by filial love. Oh, inconsequent curb of my street, I refuse to kneel. This day like any other, Plush pockets of rust about another falsehood of water, a creek that pleats. 
I've gone and got a blister. That summer, a black bear's muzzle got coated in shellac from the aerosol can she bit through on my mother's porch at the edge of the forest. Four generations ago, my great-grandmother said, don't ever shoot a black bear. They are my people. Makwa, Makwa from the North Shore. Before I continue to speak more than this, mortuary sunrise, where I'm only just alive. Buju, Anin, hello. Today is over. And I have one more poem that I'd like to read called Life Cycle of the Animal Called She. Wife, mother, mistress. I ascended not through grace, but by a debt. A trick of red knew its way all through me. How to cure him of the colic, the bedwet, the conquest, or the lack of consent. I haven't got it in my purse, in my nerve, or in a hospice of milk. A lactic dew stripping the patina from my femurs. Waitress, nurse, poor. Had I another beginning, I'd have taken love down from its shelf and inserted it. The century that flattered me begged also in roses in spring. I am but a sinner ever retreating. The limits of my language are the limits of my world. And the word was final beyond a reasonable doubt. Maid, maiden, crone. Breaking down before the reliquary age, I have this sense I am between genders in the west end of this dying city. To be a ram bucking in the stars. Did I miscarry the accident? Out on my own release and flaunting recognizance, I palpated the grief made a mask of all the features that are receding. The bones my dual nature disclosed amid a lawn of cosmos. Birth, marriage, grave. There's an amber-colored skull in the painting called Vanitas that is my son. My son cannot speak because I have no son. I have a brother on this spectrum. He drives a rig hauling metals. He is my brother, but we do not share a father. It is impolite to speak of such things. My headstone could read I was a creature unafraid to breathe these titles into speech. Address, occupation, age. Subpoena my belief. Love doesn't work here anymore. I lifted my face into distraction. I lifted my hair at its roots my breasts with wires. When I dreamt the Indian agent, he was the accountant of persuasion. I let down my limbs and replicated. I do not know any other door through which to enter. Castigate my own body in service to the tyranny of will, which is no altar. There is no take away in the forest who will be invited to eat and devise a plot of land. Make this mantle disappear. The world is independent of my will. I've said this. Nothing in me can ever truly pay the lease. Feel like like we're in person together, and the room is all is all cheering. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. 
That's beautiful. Are both those pieces from the forthcoming book? Yes, yes. Wonderful. I, I'm not trying to draw linkages where linkages may or may not be there, but I heard I heard echoes from Skull Ambient into Infinite yes. Citizen into, into letters. And, and I'm wondering, because you've spoken in the past about the iterative writing process, how you feel this forthcoming book uh, relates with your broader collection of work? It certainly does. There is crossover in content, whether there are Easter eggs to call, I suppose, <laughs> like it feels weird to call them that, that there are, there are, there, but there's at least one that I can remember. There might, there might be others that are sort of direct pulls from or references to my first book. And although it is less, well, I, maybe that it, it remains to be seen because I don't know how this book is going to be read by other people. But there is a similar yet different form of three-dimensionality or looping or circular movement in the book, but different. Same but different. And the book is operating on... on these are, you know, I, it's hard to talk about because, you know, the, I, I'm just kind of like letting you in on some, some of the deeper theoretical concerns or thoughts that I had behind the book. But I am in a way hoping that it will come across in the book that it's almost... The book keeps folding in on itself, returning to itself. It's almost like an Ouroboros, right? Mm. Did I pronounce it? The snake that eats its own tail? It is very... Very much that 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 is what the book is, right? Almost, um, you know, connected. You know, which is connected to one of you know the set of symptoms that accompany something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that you're sort of you're always, I mean, one way to you're always kind of you're always in the you're almost always you know, physiologically in a moment of great life sustaining you know activation or agitation but like one hallmark of it is that you know you have um, this returning of memories from you know the same memory like your your mind is always replaying without you summoning it or without you being able to stop it, it you know your mind is going through the same scenario over and over and over again and also with some uh aspects of like, like post-traumatic stress disorder that are that are related to something like sexual assault or or other other forms of violence there's almost this repetition compulsion or this compulsion to repeat where the mind or the body or whatever is going on one can find oneself all, all of a sudden in the middle of a, of a similar situation right like trying to live something again with a better outcome so these are these are those are sort of like the more sort of like psychological concerns that are going uh that are going into the book like around this looping whereas in the first book it was just something interesting that I would that I wanted to play with through this idea of like of course sample or gender chronology where in like the latter part of the book there are these series of poems constructed from content uh, you know thematic or directly pulling words from the first like 14 poems or four, 14 poems yes first 14 poems um, in the book to create these like what I what I was sort of calling like recommendative sonnets and because of my previous work in, in, in cognitive psychology, it would you know it was interesting to me to try and what I how I will explain this is like to talk about just briefly the types of like experiments that I that I would often run like the experimental protocols that we we would often run people through. So the experimental protocol would happen. The experiment would happen in three different phases. 
and the participant has no knowledge of an interconnection between any of the the three the three phases. So there's an in initial phase in which we 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 would call the priming phase. So the participant is you know exposed to information that they don't you know that they're not explicitly. Uh, told to pay attention to, but somehow might be filtering through into consciousness. So for example, we would show individuals like simple line drawings of common objects, common animals, and they were to press the spacebar every time the same line drawing would appear, one, one after the other back to back. But after a while, there would be text superimposed on top of these line drawings. And, and it might be just like nonsensical, like strings of like X's and or whatever, or it could be like whole words. And they were told to just, you know, don't pay attention to the word. The word doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that the two line drawings match up. And then there would be sort of like a inter interstitial period where, you know, they're doing an unrelated task, a non-verbal non unrelated task, like sol solving math equations, for example, for 10 minutes. And the idea of that, I could do yeah. that for maybe like a second. <laughs> I'm terrible. Well, well, I know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it was really stressful. And I think eventually we found a different inter, what I, I forget what, you know, what it's called in this in-between time. And this in-between time is just meant to like fill time with nonverbal information so that, you know, this, you know, sneakily, you know, this, this verbal information that we've presented before wouldn't be immediately within the, the short, short term memory, you know, the the auditory register immediately or visual visual you know a little, little dusty and all of this but then after this like interstitial sort of period we would then present them for example like we're, we're problems right where they were only you know it's almost a sort of like wheel of fortune type of situation where only a few letters in a in a word would be present and they they would have to solve it and it, and it turned out like for some for some participants particularly older older participants because they're more susceptible to distraction they were more they were statistically they were able to solve these word problems for which they had been previously exposed to the answer to in the first phase of the experiment versus uh, young adult, younger adults who are very, very good at blocking out distraction. So in my, I was interested to see if re-encountering some of the, this earlier information would sort of create a kind of loop, a cognitive loop within the minds of the readers. And they realize, oh, I, I encountered this before. And then, you know, they have sort of this interesting temporal cross-pollination, as you call it, because they're encountering previous information, but presented in a different way. And so their previous exposure to this information is informing their, their current reading. And then their current reading is, in a backwards way, informing what they read before, explicitly or implicitly. Or, or at least, like, maybe it would cause people to be like, oh, what's going on here? Oh, uh, this reminds me of something. Didn't I read this before? And then they would have to, like, physically flip through to the beginning and kind of start start over again and then maybe read through a second time and so it's kind of like sort of sneakily in a way <laughs> sort of pre-programmed into the composition of the book itself to facilitate rereading reading and rereading if you like it well a lot of people uh, you know on goodreads could barely stand it the first time <laughs> apparently so but 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 I've heard that some people still like to flip through it, and every time they read it, they they pick up something new. And, and and to me and to me, that's the best kind of book. Like that's the kind of book that excites me. You know, I have books like that that I or like or authors that I return to. 
over and over again to inspire me. I feel like there are books that I'll always be reading like throughout my life. Are, are there some you'd like to share? I feel like I'm always sort of like sharing the same sort of ones, but I love reading work of like Erin Murray and Lisa Roberts and, and Margaret Christakis, who's like an early kind of like mentor of mine, like who exposed me to so much great work. So American, I, who I really love, Ariana Rhines, and uh, someone's a more, I, I guess, kind of like contemporary work that I, that I find like I would want to keep re- returning to is um, Kinesia Lubrin's work, especially her her new book, The, the Dysgraphist, because it's it contains many worlds. And I almost I almost wonder if like, uh, you know, she has I feel as though like she has um, related but somewhat different concerns than than, than I do uh, in my writing, which just makes it all the more kind of enriching for me to read to read and reread her work. I'm trying to think of other things. I tend, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and sometimes you know, we all we all like the things that we like, and I find myself, you know, rereading like a lot of Sylvia Plath, and yeah, I find myself returning returning to her a lot. But I wish, yeah, I, lately I've been doing, I, I, I've been, I've been serving on a, on many different juries, so a lot of my reading has has been for you know different awards awards journey awards uh, jury juries you know there's a lot of reading that i and 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 of course like i'm always i'm it's kind of it's sort of like an, an embarrassment of riches there's so much reading that also that i'd like to be doing for my for my own projects but but in terms of like at the uh, I'm sure there are works that I'm forgetting that I will remember when this is over to mention, but those are some of those are some of like the core the core voices that I always love to return to. That's fabulous. It's it's so amazing to me to to think about the way that communities of writers find connection points in surprising or unsuspecting ways, but then yeah. also writerly communities where voices are aligned and stronger together. And so it's kind of really neat to have you share that and and. Yeah, I've got some dropping to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and Liz, I was I was so interested to hear you speak about, you know, your connection to writerly communities and some of your work um, with juries. And I, I had a question prepared for today, uh, just considering your time at the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program at the University of Calgary as well. And well, maybe this is lots of different questions packed into one, but I'm just wondering what it's been like for you during the pandemic um, as someone who is so connected to different kinds of writerly communities with, with a network of peers around you and also connecting to new new burgeoning writers as well and how, how that's been for you and, and how you sort of feel about community in our current time and place. Yeah, that's certainly an excellent question. It has been in some ways difficult because of the pandemic and also the fact that, you know, I was living in Calgary for a year from the late summer of 2018 to the late summer of 2019 and that I packed up all my whole life again <laughs> and moved back to to Toronto, you know, hoping to, yeah, just, you know, to reconnect with all of the people, all my friends uh, here and also all of my families in Ontario, in Northern Ontario, but just, just to be a little closer to them. But then, you know, and, uh, but I found, I, I, I found it sort of a, a little difficult reintegrating into, into writing spaces. Um, in Toronto, I, I, I had the sense, you know, so much had gone on and changed in, in the time, in the time that I was gone. And, and also, you know, I was in a difficult and complicated domestic situation that meant for, for, for a few years, I, I, I felt as though I, I really barely went out to, to very many things in a way that I could, you know, sort of like su- sustain um, some of these more, what, not distant, not distant, sort of like, like, a, you know, a, acquaintances and people that I know, but 
who I primarily know through through writing and you know and I, I'm sort of the shy person and I I tend to not put myself out there maybe as much as I should asking people you know to you know to go out for a coffee or or even chat with them you know like via text or or email I really have a really difficult time with text and email and, and, and all of that but then you know all of a sudden then, then the pandemic happened and we were all sort of and, and here in Toronto it's been it's been particularly grueling because we've essentially been on like sustained lockdown for the past year now there there were uh, a few moments in the summer where it, it was safe you know to, to gather outside you know in, in small in small numbers as long as you socially distant we're socially distanced and I was out with uh, friends, but but other than that, you know, I find you know we we're all kind of living our lives online, and in a way, um, there are positive aspects to that, and of course, negative aspects to that. I suppose some more some positive aspects is that you know we're all kind of like constantly sort of like on social media and Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. Um, so I, I've just found myself kind of I don't, are those are those communities uh, as they're kind of sort of ad hoc, you know, sort of communities many communities that sort of form around around different issues. So I find myself engaging a lot with indivi- individuals and in, in conversations online and spaces where I feel where I feel safe and also where I feel seen. So I find myself like fo- following a lot of like black indigenous, uh, and people in, of color uh, on social media and the different writing that they're doing um, outside of, you know, a medium like Twitter and also queer communities. And something that's been really important for me is a kind of like a kind of mad, like mad positive community because I'm a, I'm a pure, I'm a, I've, I'm a, I'm a pure a workshop facilitator for this incredible organization that's based here in Toronto called Inkwell. And it offers free workshops like across genres uh, for individuals in the city of Toronto. It's sort of like a funding stipulation who who self-identify as living with mental health and substance abuse issues. And all of the instructors are all acclaimed, award-winning, established writers who also have lived with similar with similar issues. I've given, I think, seven workshops over the past year. And also a, 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 I, yesterday, it was just yesterday, um, that I, I, I facilitated a salon for Black and, indig- and Indigenous uh, people, people of color who identify, you know, sort of like, I don't know if ever, everyone identify, might identify as mad, but but coming coming through that from that world largely and and also doing a lot of like one-on-one feedback sessions with people and that that has been that that has really been the most enriching and uh, positive part of this of this time usually uh and it's all it's of course it's all remote it's all over zoom but you know as someone who is facilitating something and you know and feeling that i'm very much among peers and i'm not having to kind of mask so much Maybe some of my own oddities or particularities or hystericalness or, you know, or inattentiveness, uh, so on and so forth has been really, really great. Just the and the people that I've been able to work with through that organization have just been absolutely incredible. Their voices are so, I mean, each voice is so unique and the the writing that these people are, these individuals are able to produce in like 10, 15 minutes uh, is really, is really astounding to me. It also challenges me too, as a writer. I don't know if I could, you know, write a decent sentence, a two, de- two or three decent sentences in, you know, 10 to 15 minutes and they they write these incredible, these incredible poems. So, so that's been really great, but I so miss, 
being, you know, being going out and, and being being with people in person and go, going out to readings and conferences and festivals. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, perhaps one day when something like that is possible again. And in terms of my experience in Calgary, you know, there is a wonderful writing community in Calgary, both like within the university itself and, and people who aren't, who aren't necessarily connected to the University of Calgary. I formed some really deep, meaningful life-affirming forever friendship while I was there with people like, like Caitlin Purcell, who's a poet and a graduate student in the Department of English. She probably knew her quite well. And also Joshua Whitehead, who is just brilliance personified physically, mentally, spiritually, intellectually. So I felt like I, I was in such a, a rich presence of people who, who were, you know, we would talk about writing, but uh, we would also talk about life and sort of experience different writer, writerly things together. Like we all went to, there was this big uh, Canadian writing and performance conference in, in Dublin around around this time last year or at the end of April last, oh, two years ago, sorry, two years ago. And a lot of us, you know, went over there and it was sort of interesting but to be, you know, sort of like a, a bunch of like native, uh, native authors sort of like invading these invading these uh, pubs and stuff that were former haunts of like Yates and Joyce. And, That's amazing. <laughs> uh, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty, I don't know. That was pretty wild. It was fun. That, that was some of the best stuff about resulted in that time in Calgary. But, but also like well, when I was there, it was almost, it was almost like a primer for, for this time of the pandemic of, I have a, I'm lucky, I have, I have a roommate and I adopted a cat. Yeah. So, you know, I'm fortunate that, that I have company in that way but when I was in Calgary I was you know I was living on my own for the first time in five five six years on I was in a completely new city and so I spent I spent a lot of time alone trying to you know gra grappling with my own personal issues and and also with with this book spending a lot of time writing or at least thinking about writing and so I, I suppose with you know Hindsight has me looking at those periods of sort of like isolation and, and loneliness as, as a positive as well. Is there, I, I don't want this to sound off tone, but you know, we could all use a little sunshine right now. Oh, yes. Yes. Are there things right now that, that bring you joy or pleasure? Or? Yeah, I really love stand-up comedy. Oh, so do I. And I almost think that there are sort of parallels between, you know, I mean, there are parallels like throughout all of these sort of creative industries now that abusers and otherwise bad actors are being are being exposed for 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 who they are and you know the the harm that they've that they brought and there's a kind of like concern is like always can you even make a joke about anything anymore without being canceled but there are scores of incredible set of comedians who don't like necessarily have some of them do but don't necessarily have a really high profile and they they manage to be absolutely hilarious without you know being being homophobic or that you know in, in some way kind of like laughing about like violence against women and women and women uh, identifying a person so someone who I really love is is Nicole Byer. Uh, she's the she's a, a, a comedian from uh, from the states, and most people know her as the host of um, well, what is that show? Nailed it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> she has and such a joyful presence. <laughs> yeah, she's she's absolutely oh, yeah, she's absolutely fantastic, and I've loved. To, uh, she has this podcast called Why Won't You Date Me, which is absolutely hysterical, and she'll have all these guests. Uh, come in, you know, people from people from the industry, uh, different, you know, internet personalities and 
people who do drag and they just talk about, you know, like about, about, about life and dating and, and sex and, and all of the hilarious misadventures that come along with that. So I've really, really enjoyed that. And I find myself returning to comedy specials that I've really enjoyed before. There's this uh, incredible uh, comedian from the United States. She has a part, um, a partial a special like on Netflix. And her name is uh, Yamanika Saunders. And she also has like a great Instagram and she, she often goes live. And I find her absolutely hysterical. And she has this great comedy album called uh, Damsel in Distress. And I also love T- Tig Notaro and Maria Bamford, who's mm-hmm. incredible. She jokes. And I, I feel very like a kindred. I feel, I feel find her a kindred spirit. She jokes a lot about mental illness. And it's good to laugh. Oh, <laughs> about some things instead of you know weeping and despairing all of the time <laughs> and uh and also and as i said you know i was fortunate in that just just before the lockdown happened last march i was already in the process of, of adopting the cat mm-hmm. that i have now uh, sir thomas brown the cat <laughs> yeah <laughs> He was like, that was, you know, his name, uh, I guess the foster, uh, he was a foster cat. I joked that he was born in a dumpster. He was like a, a set of a set of kittens that, that were rescued along with like a feral mother and the kittens, you know, were, were weaned and raised and um, adopted off. And he's, he's been, I sound like such a cliche, but whatever, <laughs> you know, I feel cliches exist for a reason, but I love, I love, I love this cat and he is like, a complete spot of joy in my day uh, every day he's he's so funny and and he's very he's very clingy and needy which is kind of which is nice which is nice his name and reminds me, of, i was gonna say his name reminds me of sir didymus from labyrinth <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah oh wow yes yes very good yeah Liz, I, I've got one more question for you uh, before we conclude. And it's just, you know, you, you were talking about how Letters in a Bruce Cosmos comes out in, in June. And what, what, is that, what does that look like for you in terms of a release during a time that might be so surreal and unusual? I have been thinking about this myself. I, I, it has take, I feel like it has taken so much for me to just get this book into the world. And also enormous patience and support from, you know, my, my editor, my editor, who is a Dion brand. I had like the you know, exceptional privilege to be able to work with her, like during the, the last of her tenure as a poetry editor at McClellan and Stewart. And also everyone, every, everyone at MNS, you know, sort of waiting on me to get in, you know, diff- various drafts and respond to edits and whatnot. But I just, I just said to my, you know, I just had to say to myself that I just, I just had to answer the call of this book and get it out there. And then we will deal with the rest. So now the book is in the stage where I suppose like it's, it's being, it's in the, in the process of being printed or it's about to be printed. It's about to become physical. So there's this other sort of, you know, physical, physical creation uh, part. It's almost like the printing press is kind of the surrogate almost mother (laughs) where I sort of like donate, I sort of donated this being and then it's going to be rendered into, into, you know, into this form that is, that can be disseminated and how that's going to work. I don't, I don't really know. I feel it's almost like in a way it takes, a bit of the worries or the fear or the tension off about, you know, pr- producing the second book 
that is coming in on the heels of of a book that got a lot of attention. And so, you know, over the past several years, people were like, oh, how's it going? Like trying to write a second book. And do you think it's going to be as good as the first one? And is it going to do as well? And are you worried about that? And it's like, oh yeah, no, dude, no, I'm not, not worried at all. Right. Cause I'm not, I'm not a human being and I don't worry about such things. But the fact that it's, you know, this completely different context with the, the, the pandemic and for the most part, I, I don't really have to leave my house. I don't have to leave my house to sort of like promote it. So I guess this is kind of the the control, the control station of promotion for this, for the next little while. So, you know, I guess, you know, I will try and promote it as, as well as I can on my end. And presumably, you know, the press has their ways of doing things. And, and I, and unfortunately, you know, I've had a number of invitations to, to do readings and, and like a virtual, I think at least like one or two virtual festivals in the fall and, and, and maybe either virtual or, or maybe a couple of in-person events in 2022. So, so we'll just, we'll just have to see. You know, I've decided to not be stressed out about it. And it sounds like, you know, with, with great, you know, respect for the, um, the you know, the, the, the content that you were speaking to as a book, it sounds like an incredible series of worlds to enter into. I can't wait to do that. Thank so, you so much, Paul. So I want to thank you for your time, Liz. I'm really, really grateful to to have you join us at Tea House Talks. And it was an absolute yeah. pleasure. So, you know, such a pleasure. Thank you, Paul, for having me. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Liz Howard by Paul Monier. I am Mahmoud Ababne, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Art and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stucco, at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larry Salai, Paul Monier, Shu Yu, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, and me. Thanks for listening.